The David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Cherish the legacy. Hello everyone and welcome to the David Cassidy Connections, your podcast all about David. From fans, friends, musicians, actors and anyone influenced by his life. Remember you can click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts from so you will be alerted when new episodes are released. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Today my guest is Doug Boyd, singer, actor, producer, horse lover and close friend of David's. Doug has an illustrious stage career. It was while starring on Broadway in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat that he met David, who was called in to take over the title role in 1983. Doug taught David the role and their friendship grew. David offered Doug a new direction in his career when he was working in Las Vegas, inviting him to produce a new show he had created. Doug went on to work as tour manager for his US and UK tours. And in our absorbing conversation, Doug talks about their friendship, David's love of the great American songbook, why the stage was so important to him, his fears of being famous, why Joseph was such a good role for him, and a number of amusing memories of a cherished friendship. He also explains why he affectionately called him the Elf. Here is my conversation with Doug Boyd. It's great to see you again. Thank you. Your friendship with David was very much like the coming together of two soulmates. Mm -hmm. You told me that David gave you the best part of his life and everything goes back to him. Can Mm -hmm. you remind me how you met? I met David when he came in to replace me in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. David, David came in, uh, he was doing a little Johnny Jones on the road and our producers wanted David Cassidy and everybody knew that David would be a marvelous Joseph and he was. As happens in, in uh, the West End as well as in broad, on Broadway, when a show has had quite a long run, then they, they decide it's good to bring in a star to help box office. And so David came in for six months and when David's time was done, then the show closed. But we had been open for about two and a half years. So he did the last part of the show. And we became fast friends. And then we, we parted ways, as happens in, a, in any theatrical experience. And we didn't see each other again for many years. Um, and that was in Vegas. So Billy Hutton was originally the, the original Joseph. And then I took over for him um, six months in. And then Andy Gibb came in and poor Andy had a lot of demons. There was one other fellow who came in, it didn't last very long. And then they decided, let's bring in David. And they thought that David would be, and they were right, that David would be a really good sell for Joseph. Because Joseph is a sweet little guy and, and so was David. So when David came into the company, Um, I remember getting a a call that we needed to all go to the uh, wardrobe room. And the wardrobe room is the only place you could smoke. Now, who knows who thought that this was a good idea with costumes and cleaning supplies. But anyway, in those days, we all smoked. Um, and, uh, And I walked in and here's this cute little David. Uh, smoking my brand 
Marlboro Lights at the time when we all smoked. And I just thought that he was charming. Uh, the girls, of course, were absolutely gaga for him. And I introduced myself and, uh, and I said, um, and David, I think I'm going to be teaching you this show. And he said, well, that would be great because I had, I've been doing it forever. And that's really how we became friends because I taught him the show according to what I did. And then every actor takes a twist on who that character really is. And David did as well. We all do. So that's, that's really why he came in was to save the show and box office went crazy. And, you know, of course. <laughs> of course. Let me take you back a little bit further okay. in, in your own career because this leads to Joseph. You came to the UK and you studied at the Central School of Drama and mm -hmm. the Dance Centre in Covent Garden. It was while you were here in the UK that you saw Joseph and the amazing yeah. Technicolor Dreamcoat. When you go back to the States, tell us what happened after that, which led to you landing the lead role mm -hmm. when, when, uh, when the show came to Washington, D.C. As you well know, Joseph is, is a big pantomime show and uh so and it was and it still is quite a short piece but i went to see joseph so when i came back to america after studying abroad i was in washington and uh, i saw a notice for for auditions for joseph the amazing technical dream code it was going to have a limited run and i had a beard at that time and i thought well, i can go play one of the brothers i mean i can I'll just go, I'll go down there and audition. They said, um, come back tomorrow, but would you shave? He said, but I said, but I look biblical, don't you think? And they said, no, 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 just shave. I said, okay. I went home, I shaved, I came back the next day and they had me sing a couple of things and they had me move. And then they said, come back tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> and I said, this has to be a something. And so after I went the third time, they said, we do have a, we will be offering you a job, drink a whole lot of malteds and maybe a lot of beer because you're too skinny. And I was, I was a beanpole at that time. That's changed. So, <laughs> so, um, so they said, uh, first day of rehearsal will extend contracts. And I said, okay. I had no idea that I was cast as Joseph in Joseph. I had no idea. I, I thought I would have been a, fine brother with my beard. So, um, so Wench Lento was the choreographer and Wayne is, you know, he, he was a choreographer wicked and for, I mean, so many things. We rehearsed the show at Union Station because they were renovating the train station and because sports theater is owned by the government. It's a, it's a national monument, national, like it's national treasure. It's, we opened and we were only supposed to run six weeks and we ran for six months. And from that show, the two producers were able to talk Andrew into letting them have the rights to perform the show in New York City. I didn't open New York uh, as Joseph. I was one of the brothers. But then I eventually, when Billy Hutton left, I went in. It was just this little show. And by the way, today is January 28th. And today marks our first performance of Joseph at the 
on Broadway. We opened a little theater down in on the east uh, on the east side called the Intermedia Theater. So, but today, the 28th is the first is our anniversary. 40 years ago, we oh. opened up Broadway. It was a great happenstance. We all do lots of things in show business. I mean, I think I've done everything except to drive a dustbin truck, you know, <laughs> because, because we have to survive. Um, I used to tell my kids when I was teaching, everything is about 15 minutes. And I'm not talking about 15 minutes of fame. I'm talking about decisions that you've made that 15 minutes when you make a decision or you do something can change your life exponentially. I said, so y'all want to be actors. When you get that call from, from a casting agent or from a manager and say, you know, I think this might be good for you. You need to go. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, I just put hamburgers on the grill. I just, I don't think I'm going to go. I'll just blow it off. Had I not gone to that little audition uh, at Ford's Theater, I wouldn't have starred on, on the stage at Ford's and then was able to take the final bow on a Broadway stage because of those 15 minutes that I selected to just go. And it's scary to audition. It's, it's really awful. I mean, but, I mean, any actor that tells you that they love to audition, they're nuts. <laughs> you know? there's, nothing, there's nothing more vulnerable uh, than being a performer, really, at the end of the day. It's, uh, David would come off stage and go, how did it sound? You know, because I would always, there was a period of time when I was backup singer for him. No, I did it all. <laughs> but he would come off stage because he wanted to make sure it, that it sounded okay. Can, can you remember the first time you did any rehearsals together when you say you were teaching him the show? Yeah, we did. But it was a lot easier because I was doing the role. And so it was, it was just so much more simple for him to just say, well, this is a web, this is this, this is this, bounce down right, and it made it a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I really believe that's why we became friends. I really do, because yeah. we spent more time than we normally would. I would have just been another, uh, you know, somebody else, as opposed to someone that, that worked with him um, in, in this role. His interpretation of Any Dream Will Do, mm. I remember seeing a clip of him on the Merv Griffin show. Yes. Where he'd done a matinee that afternoon and had run across <laughs> to appear on the show, the reception he received from the audience was astonishing. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. wasn't aston astonishing to you or or to me, but to be able to sit there and see an audience reaction was the first night like that for him. Yeah, I, you know what? I think that we forget, and those of us who are our friends or fans or affectionados of David is that even, and let's see, so that he was probably around 30, 31, because we were just a few months apart from each other. And he was still a phenomenon. Now we have to remember that when he was doing the Partridge family, he was still 18, 19, you know, and, um, and he continued to work and he had his own television series and, and a lot of things. But still at 30, 29, 30 years old, he was still cute as a bug. And he had, he had support of so many people. 
And uh, so, yeah, when, uh, when David walked on stage, because I don't know if you recall, but all of the brothers came out. There was a, on, on, on the stage was this little hut, a little tent, and there was a trap door underneath that. So as, uh, as all the brothers were, were introduced by Lori Beachman or whoever, whatever narrator, you know, and then last was David. But we all came out of this little tiny tent. It was really not any bigger than that. And um, when David hit the floor, then they had to just like, just fill time with the orchestra because he was, uh, he's David. And uh, people really, they, they, you know, they took him all in. I mean, he took on a tremendous challenge when he took the lead in Joseph. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, but you know what? Joseph, that little, that little guy, I loved playing that little guy. I wish that I was as nice as Joseph, the biblical Joseph really was. He was so it was like not about killed both of us to have to be 28, 29 years old and, and act like 10 years younger. Our music director, David Friedman, was, was just a stickler when it came to backbeating. And so that was a big challenge for David. It was a big challenge for me because I was under contract with RCA when I first started. And that generation, and David as well, you know, it's like everything is supposed to be this way. If you're saying, close every door to me, David would always want to do close every door to me and it's like the music director no 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 this is this is broadway you have to close every door to me so that was a challenge for him i thought that it was a really good choice to have david in that role because it didn't check it didn't put him in a place where he could possibly fail he was cute charming skinny little thing and he was playing a character that he could he could put his teeth into. It was a very short show. You know, remember, Joseph was written when the boys were 15. Yeah. And at that time, I think it only was 20 minutes. <laughs> and so they added a couple of things. But our producers had the had all the rights to to re to rescore it. Now nowadays, Andrew controls absolutely everything. But our production. Andrew had really kind of given it all away. So in the original show, there's there's not an intermission. So they put an intermission, then they did five years of reprises of every number. And yet we, and we shared the stage door with uh, 42nd Street, which is a, it's a big, big old show. Out of our makeup, costumes, and on the way to the subway, before the first act of 42nd Street came down. <laughs> so we have the best deal in town. And we were also under a, what they called the Peter Pan schedule because when Peter Pan was running on Broadway, there were so many children in it and there were so many young people that wanted to see that show that they added an extra matinee on. So there were matinees on both Saturday and Sunday. So we were lucky. We were off on Monday and Tuesday and didn't have to go back to work till Wednesday. So not only did we have the shortest show in town, but we had the greatest schedule. So it's like it was two and a half years of just 
having fun. And, and, and when David came in, we continued to have fun. It was a really good role for David um, because Joseph is, is sweet. He's not, he's, he doesn't understand why people wouldn't like him just because he's interpreting dreams. You know, it's just like, well, why would you not like me? And so David in his, I mean, it's bright and worldly as David was, he was still a little baby in a lot of ways. And he didn't understand why anyone would not like him or not get who he was. So I thought that Joseph was the perfect role for him because he was a man child. Because so often roles that actors take on, they bring a lot of themselves to it. Oh, you, you must. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I always find it interesting when people have to play uh, murderers or something like that, because if you're not a murderer, then you're trying to find some, something in that character that you can bring honesty to um, when you're performing. So we'd be liars and hypocrites as actors uh, to not say, no, this is, this is me. This is me with an ad- adaptation. But David was, <laughs> David was right for the role. He really was. Can you remember when he sang for you for the show for the first time? I just thought that it was a totally different approach because David was, I close my eyes because David liked to sing with a little bit of this. I close my eyes. You know, so, um, and I do, I close my eyes. So it was totally personal and different. And and it worked. So it was kind of like, oh, this is this is cool. It's exactly what you were talking about in that an actor brings who they are to the lyric set and to the performance that's required. Flash light, my going through 
I wanted to ask you about the techniques needed for mm -hmm. someone who is regarded as a pop rock singer to make that mm -hmm. transition to singing on the on a Broadway stage. Uh -huh. uh, I remember when Paul Stanley of Kiss auditioned for the lead yeah. in Phantom of the Opera. He mm -hmm. said the pressure was enormous. He uh. was kind of put in at the deep end and he'd never worked harder in his life. But because mm -hmm. of his association with rock music, people assumed he was going to sink. And he right. said, nothing makes you more determined to swim if people think mm -hmm. you're going to, to sink. The reason I wanted to ask about the technique needed mm -hmm. to sing on, on stage mm -hmm. is that Andrew Lloyd Webber said that every musical he ever wrote has a section in 7-8 time. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can explain what that means, what David had to call on to, to deliver. Who's the thief from Joseph is an example. And Andrew's right. It's like, <laughs> but it's the same thing in Lenny Bernstein did the same thing in I Love a Bit of America. Um, and in Jesus Christ Superstar, um, who is it? It's almost exactly, Andrew likes to steal from himself. When you are at liberty to, to really just sing and extend notes and, and, you know, just be David or be any of, any of the, uh, the singers, it's just so hard to have to pull everything and really count. You have to count. Now, David, David was a good musician. David could play. He liked to play the drums. He wasn't the greatest drummer, but he could play. He played guitar and he played the piano. So he understood how to count it. But who's, who's the thief is, is a perfect example of that. So eventually it gets in your soul and, and, and you don't have to count it anymore. Right. But it's very contrapuntal. But at the end of, of, the, of the Western number, it was that it was about it was about seven eighths, but every 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 foot every foot move was was had to be counted. And and David is not a, a he's not even he wasn't even a move weller. If there's one thing that he just really wasn't great at was doing choreography. It was it was hard. But he did it. He 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 got he he went through all of all of Andrew's crazy uh, rhythm um, changes. Um, right. But Andrew likes to do stuff like that. Um, but Sondheim does stuff like that, but often it's so difficult that the, that the uh, actors never really completely learn it. I had a friend that was doing Into the Woods on Broadway, the original company, and uh, she was in the ensemble. And I'd go home every night and work on certain passages that she said, I never, never completely learned everything. Sondheim likes to write stuff that virtually impossible to sing. <laughs> he hears it in his head. But Joseph was well within David's capabilities and he came through. He'd always get notes. We all got notes over, over extending lines, just a little bit, make it just a little prettier. It's like, no. But no, David was not at a disadvantage because of his musicality. He could read music. I know that when there were three of us that did backup vocals for him, boy, he knew when it was wrong. 
because he'd been hearing this 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 backtracks for a long, long time. I mean, for his whole life. And so he would he would always go, no, 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 no. What are you singing? What are you singing? What are you singing? That would be the third one. No, Dougie, that's wrong. This, and then he'd play it. I said, okay, okay. So that really that was a great advantage for David in any passage that was difficult. He didn't like rehearsals very much. So he would like cram and then and was like, oh, gotta go. And his brother, Sean, said at one point when they were doing Blood Brothers, he would just like, oh, I, got, I have somewhere to go. And it's like, David, can't leave right now. <laughs> we've, got, we've got to rehearse. So, uh, but he, he would he'd cram so he wouldn't fail, but he still, he just didn't, didn't have fun rehearsing. He told me that he really wanted it for everything to be good. Did David ever talk to you about turning down the opportunity to play the lead in Jesus Christ Superstar, the movie? Oh, no, he didn't. I didn't know they did. That would have been, it would have been quite good. How different could the story have been? It would have been, um, it would have moved him just in a totally different direction in his career, I would say. He always, always really wanted to do like movies and not television, the little, you know, the little screen as opposed to the big screen. That would have been, that would have been a great casting. You you told me before um, about what you call the stillness an artist there's there's a time when you do a show long enough but i think that all actors do this is they find a day but you find a day when you walk on stage in spite of all of the people around you and the din that may be there that there becomes a stillness that you just go oh my stars i get it everything is right with the world at that moment and there is, there is just this quiet that comes over you and everything around you is in place. Everything's in place. And that ultimately is what I think all performers are looking for, where, where everything is right with the world. But it doesn't happen all the time. And it certainly is to say it would be great if that happened on opening night of any show. But it does. <laughs> and opening night's very important because that's when you get the reviews. <laughs> but David got David got great notices because he, he was out. I mentioned he was out with little Johnny Jones. And David wasn't a tap dancer. So if you're doing George M. Cohen, this is really not perfect casting. And so he took a lot of heat with the fact that he couldn't tap dance. And then when I think... Uh, uh, it was a Donnie, I think. Donnie Osmond replaced him. And Donnie Kadab. So, but David moved from a show that was really not right for him to a show that was right for him. He could be everything that he needed to be. And his fans could be close to him. And, he lo- and his fans were very important to him. David was very proud of, of the fact that he had the largest fan club ever over Elvis and the Beatles. Now, and he would remind you of that on a regular basis because he was very proud of that. And oh my gosh, he should be. That's huge. Oh my gosh, it's just huge. Oh, I think I mentioned um, to you at one point that 
David told me that none of them ever saw the Partridge family unless they wanted to go and watch, watch, go to the studio and watch them because there was no taping that show. And because they were, they were rolling from one thing to, they would see their dailies. But he said, I never saw the show. And I said, so you didn't really get it? He said, no, no, I was just glad to have a job. <laughs> he said, I was just glad to have a job because he was a baby and he was turning into this huge superstar and he just wanted a job, which is the nature of, of performance. You know, it's like, because that's how they make their living. For those who never knew David, mm -hmm. can you explain what he was like? Well, well, he was a lot of marvelous things. He was he was a man child. Um, he never wanted to grow old, um, and um, and pretty much didn't. I think that we all know people, even as they get older, is that that we don't get old. We don't allow ourselves to get old, even though we don't feel great every day. And I think David was one of those people, even when he was young, and he was youthful and he was playful. He liked to laugh. He loved to laugh. He was a very nurturing friend. Um, he was good with people. And, um, and, you know, a lot of people found that amazing. Remember, David had the largest fan club of anyone. And so that kind of amazing success oftentimes goes to one's head and people can be unkind. That was not the case with David. It really wasn't. He was afraid of large crowds because um, he was a little guy. He was a short little guy. And, um, and he was afraid of being harmed because he was such a huge star. So I've heard stories over the years that that even if he finds himself in a lift with other people, he felt vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's true. That was absolutely true. Um, even when we were out on the road, because we had we, we did so many things together over the years um, when we rehooked again. And even when it was not, he wasn't as, as popular when he was later on in his career as far as as far as we always sold, we always sold out, but he was absolutely sure that if he was in a lift or if he was stuck wandering through a corridor, that he would be harmed because he was, he was a teen idol and he remembered that. And I, I used to always have to say, David, it's not, it's not Wimbledon anymore. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not Wembley rather. It's, it's, it's different. And, uh, but, but he had been so used to being mauled by his fans that yes, he, he always wore a black, a black baseball cap pulled down really low and he'd always avert his eyes down and that he felt safer, you know, just because, I mean, you know, if you think about it, you and I have never had to worry about adoring fans chasing us or chasing his car or banging on the windows. He used to tell me years ago um, when he when he was doing the Partridge family, he had uh, a couple of friends and they I want to say they were in the Hollywood Hills. I think they had rented this cool bachelor pad it was before he got married. And 
he said it was the word got out where they were living and the girls would just line up and bang and bang and bang on the chain link fence at the doors just to try to get in. I knew, I know where it comes from, you know, that, that sense of, of the lack of privacy. And, you know, we hear it a lot from celebrities today that, that the biggest problem that they have with their celebrity is that they are celebrities and they have no private life or it's very, it's, it's dicey at best. So yeah, it, he, he, you're right. He would, uh, he'd get frightened. He needed people like you around him mm -hmm. to protect him, to make him feel safe. It's yeah. true. I think the last, I think I told you the last time when we were visiting that we were still on the road right after 911 when everybody else was canceled. And, and so they called us and David filled in for Janet Jackson's spot and for, you know, lots of, lots of celebrities that just wouldn't fly. And yes, that was always my job is to keep, to keep people away from David when we were, you know, flying all over the place. Well, we, after three hours standing in line because the whole world was so frightened when the World Trade Center happened. And um, so we finally made it. We were sitting down and it looked like we were free and clear. And, <laughs> and the gate assistant said, uh, paging David Cassidy, David Cassidy, please come to the, to the desk. I'm going, oh, great. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> the best laid plans. <laughs> so he <laughs> goes, Dougie, you go take care of that. I said, well, I'm not David. Everyone knows who you are. You better go. I'll walk with you. So, yeah. And each, each place that we would perform, there was a part of, you know, in, in show business, well, you know the business, um, there's all, there, we have writers. And in the writer, it's, it says, you know, what, what the artist would like to eat, if he has any preference with wine or booze or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but number, one of the very first tarts uh, requirements was security. Uh, he was just so afraid of, of um, people bothering him. So yes, not only me, but a uh, whole security staff would keep an eye on him. Did you worry about him a lot of the time? I worried about him. Yeah, <laughs> he, he would terrorize my life sometimes. He would, he, he would, um, he just could not get to a place where he go, well, Dougie, I, I just can't do this. I, I, you know, I just can't do this. It, because then that would be my responsibility as his manager on the road to, to tell the casino or wherever we were playing that, that David refused to go on. So I worried about him. I didn't sleep a whole lot when we were out on the road. And we did that for about a year. So, and right. all over, and also to Great Britain. So, uh, yeah, I worried about him. <laughs> if you look at where he came from and the success that he had early on, I think that that becomes a big problem in just how you deal with life. I always said that if David had his own way, he would like to just smoke cigars, golf, and buy horses. And then, oh, on the other side, I'd like to be back on stage and have adoring fans. So he had this, this one side of him that was really very normal. 
And then he is like, oh, by the way, yeah, I was a, a teen star too. But David was, I always thought that David was kind. And I thought that people always felt that he was not full of himself. It's not like David was a saint. I mean, David and I were fast. And, um, but I think that David really was a nice guy. You know, it's just as, as, as simple as that. He was a nice guy. He was very loyal to his friends. He was always very loyal to me. He gave me huge opportunities when no one else would have. He was my friend. And I always thought that he was pretty good with his fans unless he was just in a bad mood. And that's when we would just go, okay, David, it's time, let's go. At the end of the day, he was a good man. We all have, all of us have our um, demons in life. There will always be the elephant in the room for David. His family, his success, his daddy, and all of us have stuff that we deal with. Um, David would self-medicate if he just couldn't deal with it. And I think going forward, the only thing that, that any of us will say bad about David going forward is he didn't take care of himself and he's not here anymore. We're only a few months apart. I'm still here. So that, if there's anything that pisses me off about him, and I told him this a couple of weeks before we lost him. And it's like, what? <laughs> no, no, you're, you're, you're bulletproof. You'll be fine. You'll be okay. Yeah. So, yeah. But anyway. <laughs> His passing still sends shockwaves through the, the fan base. You know, I was aware that he was, was not taking care of himself properly. But he also maintained that he was suffering from dementia. And at the end of the day, it wasn't true. And he told me that. And, um, and he was, was very apologetic as a friend. He said, I'm really sorry. And I kept this from you. And so does his publicist. And, you know, it's like, um, I was like, but, but if we knew then maybe we could have at least tried to help, you know. Again, if there's anything that going, going into the future that we will uh, feel badly about is that he just didn't take care of himself. And, and we lost him too soon. We just did. You know, he didn't. But, you know, who knows? You know, I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, I'm not a therapist. I don't really know why we all do the things that we do. Whether our behavior is um, personally driven and we're just angry people, um, we yell at people, <laughs> or we drink too much or we do drugs, or, you know, or we just get away from folks and we live all by ourselves as a hermit. You know, I, I think it's part of that, uh, he who is faultless, you know, get your, get your rocks and start throwing. And none of us really are. I'm not. I'm a mess. So. <laughs> the hardest thing for anyone who has an addiction, regardless of 
whether they're a celebrity mm-hmm. or a dustman, it's asking for help. Being able to yes. put aside your pride and say, hey, yes. I need help. Because yeah. in every other area of your life, you are probably very successful. But this is one area that you mm-hmm. haven't got any control over. And you know, that's that one area that are your addictions are what takes everything down. So all the good stuff that you are, are destroyed by all the bad things that, that you portray. Um, I know the family tried many times to do interventions and um, man, he was just, he was opposed to that. And, um, um, and so then when you have the oldest, the oldest in the family and you just go, and he goes, no, then, then people, they all backed off. And um, at least when, when, when we were coming down to, not me, but when the family was coming down to the end, they all rallied, they were all there. They were all there. And that's, that makes me happy. Nothing stronger than family. Yeah, it's the and... truth. It's the truth. And I think that, um, I think they still miss, I know they do, because... Um, because I get emails every now and then and they miss, they miss him and I miss him because I miss his, his goofy laugh. And, and, um, you know, he was, he was, he was bigger than life, even though he was smaller than life. He's <laughs> a little dude, but he was just full of energy and himself and, and all this stuff that goes with it. And so, yeah, people, people all miss him in a lot of ways. I think that there are some folks that will, will say lousy things about David just because David was a handful. He was, but that's okay. We don't care. <laughs> the hell with him. <laughs> exactly, because you will remember the good times. You will remember yeah. your friend. The laughter. Yeah. Sidebar, because I, I think you know I called him the elf, even to yes. his face. Yes. And his family and, and, and surely loved him. There was a time when, because he had so many horses, and they were all very expensive. They were all thoroughbreds, and, and he had to pay for training. And I said, you know, David, one day, I was just giving him a hard time. I said, David, I heard that they're replacing the Keebler elves. And you could live in that tree. You could you could make a fortune. People would retain would would they get it that you could live in that tree and make cookies? Shut up! That's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> oh. Every time I see the animated elf, <laughs> the I just, I just think of David Cassidy now. Is like... I know, and he hated it. He hated it. <laughs> because. I worked for him. It's like, how can you be so disrespectful? It's like, but really, you got to admit, you would fit in the tree. So, <laughs> no, yeah, we have to laugh, and um, and I think all of us that are are fortunate enough to have been around him, and all of us like Robin Haddon and Jan Riley, and all these all these great people, and Henry, and you know, there are just so many folks that that were part of his world that he would introduce you to because he was just a, he was just 
a man child. He was like, hey, how about this? Let's do this. I remember when we first started doing um, at the Copa, we were producing uh, that show at the Rio. And I had this really crummy um, Buick Riviera. And I picked him up so he could go to the theater to start, go to the rehearsal hall. Actually, no, we were going to get dinner and he introduced me to Dungeness Crabs. And so it's like, and from then on, that's what I needed to do. But I picked him up and he goes, you know, Dougie, I pay you enough to get rid of this shitty car that you're making me ride in. <laughs> so, I said, okay. And so the next day I went and bought a BMW. <laughs> Which, he was just a good guy. Mm. Just a good man. And you also know if, if there are challenges in their lives. I mean, my God. He did Wembley. How many, what, 15,000 people went to just see him? Can you imagine what that does to your head um, as a youngin, and then moving forward? Because, because it doesn't get bigger, it gets different. There are plenty of people that will say, yeah, he was an ass, or, you know, I didn't like him very much because of yada, yada, yada. I always just think that David was trying to define what the next part of his life was going to be. And he had not given up. He loved being on the road. He loved it. He loved it more than anything. And he was still out on the road, you know, and he was out with his band and he liked his little, he liked sitting at drums and putting Terry Cote um, up front singing a vocal. He loved that. He wasn't a great drummer, but he sure loved it. He, He liked his little group of, uh, his little band of warriors, you know, his little gypsies, because that's what that's what they all were. You know, he liked going on the road because because I think it reminded him of being a kid, and he was closer to his fans. You know, when you're doing a proscenium show, you have the four, fourth wall there, and you don't get to you don't have people throwing underwear and and bras at you when you're doing you know, brothers, <laughs> or, or time, that fabulous piece, um, or at the Copa. Um, but if you're, you're being a team dude, then all that stuff is still there. We loved it. People in David's position who have this total adulation, and mm-hmm. as you said just now, what that does to the performer's mind you know, you oh, yeah. such a high on stage with all this unconditional love. Yeah. And you come off stage and that must be when the loneliness hits. He would normally push it back an hour or two because he wanted to go to dinner, whether we were doing a show at the Rio or if we were out on the road, because that postponed being alone. And there's not one star actor that that will not say the worst part of of the day is the evening after you've taken your final call and you have a whole audience that are on their feet and then you just go back if you're on the road you go back to your hotel room if you're not on the road you just go home it was ethel merman years ago and she was such a balls and she was i think she it was when she was doing might have been when she was doing dolly um but she said, see, I think this is great being a star. She said, 
I go home. She said, I don't go out to the restaurants. I don't party. I have to go home because I'm doing eight shows a week. And, um, and I think that was one of the reasons why David really loved not doing a production show because then he could at least have a life. But if you're doing eight shows a week, then you know you do have to go home. There's, you know, the old adage is that you can smoke or you can drink. You can't do them both and do eight shows. And um, and it's ideal if you don't do either of the bad things. Yeah. But yeah, I think that the the um, the the dark side happens when you when all the sound of applause is over and you're by yourself, and especially when you're on the road, if you're living in the city that you're working, then you go home to your family. And that helps a whole bunch. David loved being on the road because I think we established it. He, he liked, he liked his fans. He liked people reminding him that he was still cute. He was still talented. And as far as they were concerned, he was still 18. And he liked that. <laughs> I would like to be 18. Actually, I wouldn't. I would kind of like to to think that I could do all the things that I didn't have the courage to do when I was 18, <laughs> knowing what I know now. But no, yeah. I don't want to do any of it over again. It's too much work. It's too much pain. You know, I mean, we, we all know that no matter what our careers are, um, there's just so much, there's so much hurt that goes with it. Not to be a downer, but it just that's how we learn. You reconnected with him to work mm -hmm. on at the Copa as mm -hmm. producer, and you were involved in all areas of that production, and then later on the uh, Rat Pack is back. What happened was I was working in Tokyo for for Tokyo Disney. I was a coordinator of talent uh, there at the park. I came back. Uh, my partner was stage manager on EFX and it had 2000 lighting and sound cues. It's the largest stage production show ever mounted. And David got my telephone number and he's Dougie, what are you doing? I said, well, I just got back from, from Tokyo. How much are you booking <clears throat> lately? I said, no, nah, it's, it's falling off. I said, it's not a lot. It's a good, it's time for you to retire from show business. And then, and then you need to get in show business. I said, what are you talking about? I said, come, he said, come over to my house. So, and I hadn't seen David for years and years and years. And uh, he didn't live that far from, from, from my house. So whatever. And he said, uh, I just cut a deal with Harris to put a show together. And you're going to produce it. And I said, I don't know anything about producing. I don't, I don't know anything, David. He said, I'll teach you. I said, oh, okay. Knowing full well that he didn't have much more than maybe 20 minutes worth of teaching in him when it came to producing. He had an assistant that, um, her name is Dion Kirshner, and she's actually uh, Danny Thomas's uh, granddaughter. And, um, and she is a great producer. And she, she helped me with contracts. I mean, I started from the ground up. We had a number of other people that we wanted to hire for the, the Shinny Easton part, but were not available or, or really just didn't want to commit to all those performances each week. So then we, we, we came up with Sheena and Sheena was 
able to find the time, really wanted to, to do the show with David. There was a point one day that, uh, because we had a fixed amount of money that we could spend, uh, you had two sides uh, funding for shows. It was either from hotel or from casino side. The right. casino side often will invest money because people will gamble, you know, when they're leaving the theater or before they go to the theater. So casino oftentimes will, will kick in money for the entertainment. That was then. Now, now it mostly it's everything is self-produced. Um, so a producer will have to come to the casino and say, we want to do a show. They don't give money anymore. But we had money to spend. So, so it was really just like, oh, goody, this over here and this over here and this over here. And, and then we have this much left over because that's what David wanted. And uh, one day he goes, I've given you a raise. I said, well, we can't afford that shit. He said, don't tell me what I can do with my money. I'm giving you a raise. You're working too hard. You're working too hard. So he doubled my salary. So it was, it was like, well, this is okay then. If you're going to work that hard, then it's really nice when, when it's recognized. And because I would have done a whole gig for the amount of money that I agreed to do. But David said, I am the executive producer. I said, well, that's, that's fine. Even though he didn't produce it at all, <laughs> you know, but he gave me the opportunity to learn all that cool stuff. At the same time, that we were putting up at the Copa, we were uh, also putting up uh, the Rat Packers back um, at the DI, the Desert Inn. So between between the band at the Rio and the band at uh, the DI, let's see, we had 13 in one show, 13 over at the DI, and we had 18 musicians on our property at the Rio, and I cut a contract with the, with the uh, union to pay them more. Because the, in those days, Wayne Newton had a stronghold on musicians' contracts. Because right? he, at that time, hired more musicians. But I didn't think that it was fair. You get yourself in trouble sometimes if you have been a performer and you move into production. Because you know, you know that, that the performers need more. You know, I knew... Wayne Newton hated me because then what happens when you when you come up with an agreement for, for a new contract, then everybody else hears about it. And I was like, well, I'm going to go to work for David because they pay more over there. The show was supposed to run for two years. I don't think it was a great show. And I can say that because it was my show. <laughs> but I don't think that it was it was our strongest effort. You were having a bit of a battle with him to sing his old songs? Yes, yes. We put together at the Copa. But he didn't want to do any Keith Partridge song. And it was the same argument. It was like, we have to sing. It was my continual argument with, with him. It was like, it took me forever to get him to do I Think I Love You and um, Cherish and all of that stuff. Because he wanted to sing... Sinatra stuff and he wanted to do you know old standards and it, it was it was like elf boy <laughs> this your music is what made you famous but you are Keith Partridge I know I know I know it's just terrible that you had such such a huge amount of success you know wow 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 I'm so sorry David but they want you to sing those songs 
They just really, really do. And you're right. He wanted to distance himself from that character, from, from that boy, because he's a man. Juan Bronson was the music director. It was never my favorite, but, but he did a, kind of a rocky version of uh, I Think I Love You. And David liked it. And so, and the audience loved it. So he finally got it that he could do, he could do standards. He could do all the stuff that he really wanted to do. He wanted to be Frank Sinatra. He loved all the crooners. He'd, and I think that came from his dad. And that was his music. So it was Lon who finally got him to do the one number. And then after that, then he would do Cherish and he would do finally started doing all the stuff. We got him to do that. And so Lon would adding a few things here and there. And uh, so then we got some Partridge Family stuff in there. Um, and it made all the difference in the world for his audience because that's what, that's what they were there for. Like, come on, give me the song. That's why we're here. <laughs> I remember seeing him in concert in 2004. That was the last time I, I saw him live. He spontaneously in that show burst into You Make Me Feel So Young. Yeah. Oh, what a rapturous reception he got for that. But he only did a yeah. little bit. And mm -hmm. it would be nice if he'd done a little bit more. He wanted to, he really did want to do the Great American Songbook. That's, that's, that's what his dad liked. And, that's, and, and I liked it too. Had he lived longer... I think that he probably would have done an album of the Great American Songbook, but he didn't take care of himself, so we lost him. But he really loved all, all that all that stuff. And he sang a lot of it at at the at the Copa, and still the people really wanted to hear him sing. I think I love you. Yeah, yeah he didn't like the idea that you were taller than him either. Yeah, Patrick Cassidy, his brother, and 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 me were about the same height. We were doing a show in Vegas uh, with Sheena Easton that I produced with David, and he would only let Patrick replace him. It's the same when he was doing EFX over at the MGM Grand. Um, trusted his brother, and he knew that he would do a nice job. But I remember when Patrick came to to rehearse the week before, and we were standing waiting to I think go get something to eat and he said you, you you're you're wearing heels clearly to make me feel even shorter and it's like Patrick and I are wearing tennis shoes David we could go barefoot but it's not going to change anything if there was anything that would have made him happier would be if he was taller see that's what made him the elfin child you know, he was a man child, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to do his sound checks and uh, for him. And I have I, I had a similar voice and I knew what David wanted as far as setting setting levels. And, but I would have to always bring the microphone down to my sternum because that's where I'm six foot one. But my my sternum is exactly where David's mouth would hit, or hit the microphone. And every, and every now and then I would forget. And he'd walk out and he always, David Cassidy. And he'd walk out and he'd go, Dougie, you didn't set the mic. I mean, with <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you loved him dearly, didn't you? 
Oh, I did. I did. Um, you know, I did a whole, I had a whole performance career and it was David who gave me the opportunity to move from, from performance to production, to management. And because of that decision, it gave, it gave my resume um, a new direction. It gave my, my life a new direction. But that was, that was all because of David. David. David really loved to surround himself with people he could trust because he couldn't trust a whole lot. But he knew that I would never, I would never sell any information to, to the National Enquirer. I would never do anything that, that would harm him in any way. And, mm -hmm. and I was very good friends with, with his wife, his, his ex-wife, Sue, and, and Bo. I watched Bo grow up. I mean, I remember just this little, little tiny munchkin. And so I was part of a very tight, isolated group of people that had access um, because we all loved each other. And I believe that David loved me too. I mean, we, was, we spoke a week before he passed away. And, uh, and it was always the same. It was Dougie. So, but yeah, he was a dear, dear, cherished friend. Cherished friend. They they put David's ashes at Saratoga, and I thought that was really a, a nice move. And the whole family went. I wasn't able to go, but uh, but I was at the the memorial service, and it was just a handful of people at the Screen Actors Guild Theater. It was really nice, a nice event. I wanted to yeah. ask you how much the Vegas years meant to David, and the accolades and awards that came his way. How important was that recognition for him? I think that it was important. I think it was, it was another part of his life because he got a call from, uh, I think it was Todd McDougall, or it might have been, I think it was head of entertainment. I can't remember his name now. But Michael Crawford did the effects. And then I want to say Tommy Toon came in to replace him. And then David came in. And they were doing the same thing that um, the producers of Joseph did. They, they wanted to attach themselves to someone probably cooler. David was a lot cooler than certainly the Phantom of the Opera. And they called David and they gave him a great deal. I was working in Japan at the time and the largest production show still in the history of the world. And so they, they redid the show for David and and he was really good in it. He was really good in it. It was once again, it was a good show for him. He hated having to do eight shows a week, but he was really good at it. And um, he just, uh, he was able from that contract to cut a deal with Harris to produce another show for him and ultimately Machine Easton. Um, in the meantime, he was producing The Rat Pack is Back. We opened it at the DI and then moved it to the Sahara. So he was like, he was the guy. He was, he was doing all this stuff. But I think at the end of that, he looked at the terrain and realized that there was really nothing else for him to do there in Vegas. I think when they moved to, to Florida, it was because he had, he had done what he could do. I mean, 
The only other thing he could have done was a, another David Cassidy show. I mean, I think we were getting closer to the end of that huge cachet of let's draw people in because it's David Cassidy. We went on the road because it was easier to draw a bigger crowd. So I think that it was very important to him, but I think it was, it was time. I think he made a good career move. It was time to move on and do more of his, his on the road thing that he was putting together himself um, as a result of, of discovering that there was no reason to take 13 guys out on the road and, and backup singers and, you know, lighting designers. And sound. I mean, it's very expensive nut. So when, when we ended up with, we ended with the, uh, the Harris contract, then he just wanted to do small stuff yeah. and have fun. Mm-hmm. And he did. How important was it for him to have that support network around him? I wondered how much support mm-hmm. you had chasing your dream in acting because your mother wanted you to be an attorney. Yes, she did. She did indeed. Mm-hmm. I think that parents all, unless you're David Cassidy on the whole Cassidy clan, because they come from show business. And so they were all, they would have in all of their levels, they had the ability to succeed. I think my mother was concerned that I'd end up, you know, sleeping on a park bench um, trying to be an actor. But when she realized that I actually had talent and that I could get a job, then they became supportive of that. They didn't love the idea that I wasn't going to be a true professional, like lawyer um, or a doctor or any of that. Um, I really tried. I went to Brigham Young University and my first year I was pre-law and I did political science and I did all that. It just bored me to tears. It was awful. It was awful. And so I would sneak away. And those were the days of dinner theater because that's a long time ago. And um, here in the States, it was so popular, the, the dinner theater idea. So I would, I'd go and drive up to Salt Lake City and perform in dinner theater up there and then drive home. And then, um, and that was about 45 minutes each way. So I could do theater. And then when I, uh, I auditioned for a show that ended up, uh, that actually allowed me to move to Los Angeles and get an agent um, and a manager. I was one of six people at CMA, which David, I don't know. I can't remember if David was with CMA. No, he was with William Morris. But there were only six of us that were not stars mm-hmm. and with that agency. So, so by sneaking around and getting cast in things in Utah, then I was able to move to back to Los Angeles and, uh, and start my career. So I ended up having the support um, to return to your initial question. I have a tendency to ramble. You mentioned going to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Was there not a moment when you were in the rehearsal hall when you met Henry Fonda? Yes, it was. um, It was actually my first day in uh, in Hollywood, Mm. and I wasn't auditioning, but my 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 agent handled uh, because once again I I was one of just a small group of people that were not stars, but CMA, which is now ICM because um, they merged, there was some kind of merger. Um, Frank said, 
meet me at this rehearsal hall. And, and it was dark when I walked in. So I was trying to pretend that I was just a fly on the wall because like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going on here. So I was looking at the, uh, I was looking at the, the stage renderings for the set and I realized that it was time of our lives, Roy's part. And over my shoulder, uh, I heard, looks pretty good, don't you think? And I said, yeah, it really does. And it was Henry Fonda. <laughs> I'm going, oh my God, I really, I am, I have arrived. Um, but you see, I never felt that I had any right to be around all those people that had accomplished so much in their lives. And I was just at the beginning of my career. But I always found it always the case is the bigger the star, when I was there, the bigger the star the kinder they were because they'd been there. They had gone through all of this stuff, but most of the people were just kind and supportive. And they taught me how important it is to be humble at all times. And I always, I, yeah, you know, I never, I never felt that David was full of himself. He wasn't a shrinking violet, by any by any means, mm. but it wasn't it wasn't it's because I'm David Cassidy. There was never any of that kind of stuff, and he had every right to be full of himself because he did have a career. I used to love to tell him, however, because we knew each other pretty well. I used to say, oh, "Listen, damn it, your whole success is based upon three years of work. That's it, three years. So don't be telling me." <laughs> That's not right. That's not Harrison. Three years. You were three years on the Partridge family. That's not a whole lifetime career. Don't talk to me like that. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> but it gave him it, it, it gave him a platform or a, really a diving board that he could he could then move into other areas. And he probably left at the right time because he was, he was so hot in the market that everybody wanted, wanted a piece of that. Mm. And he had, well, that time, it, his, his manager, but she was the only person that David really would listen to. He loved her. When she yeah. passed, David never had representation again. His career could have been even bigger, but he felt that he could control if he if he retained control over his life entirely, then he will make the decisions. He was sure of that, but he didn't. I think we all need um, the vantage of, of supportive and fair, but honest people that will tell you this is a bad decision. Let's not do this. Let's move in this direction. And uh, he could be very headstrong about that. I used to tell him, I said, you know. 10% when you're making even a buck is still worth the investment. Yeah, but, you know, management and, and I can't tell you how much money I lost over there. I said, you didn't lose. It's You got this right the 25% off in taxes. But the most important part is to have somebody that really has your best interests in mind. But because the roof was so important to him, I don't think that he ever felt that he could trust anyone with managing his career like he could trust her. There could have been a lot more David Cassidy uh, in the world um, had 
Ruth not passed. She had a plan for him moving moving forward. So, Do you know what sort of plans she had in mind? Well, you know, she wanted, she wanted, and he did. Remember, he did that man undercover, I think it was, right? The David Mm. Cassidy man undercover. She wanted him to continue on making big money in television because David was, who was like when he left, Partridge family was like, no, 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 don't leave all of his fans because, but she wanted, I know Ruth wanted him to continue on in television, but I think it's very difficult for any, you know, if you, if you're part of a genre in performance, it's hard to, to break that mold. It's, it's like uh, Jim Carrey um, is, will always be a funny man to me, but uh, like Robin Williams as well, they both so desperately wanted to do serious pieces of art, serious Mm -hmm. films. But as an audience, we don't, we don't, cotton to that. We don't allow it to happen. And so I don't think David Casty Man Undercover really, I don't think, I think people still saw him as Keith Partridge. So then he started setting his sights on doing stage plays and things like that. Then we talk about, he did time yes. and, and not a, not a great piece of theater. <laughs> I never understood <laughs> you, it. You know, myself. but he even knew that he said it was awful. It was awful. <laughs> People always talk about how proud David was of his father, but his mm. mother was also a stage and television actress. Did he ever talk about mm-hmm. how much of an influence she had on him? And was she the emotional pin that was holding him together when he when he was a, a young boy and in his early teenage years? I think so. I think he, he always his eyes always lit up when he talked about his mum, his real mum. Because so many people think that Shirley is his mom, and Evelyn Ward, she was just a just made him smile. I know Evelyn really liked him on stage. I was lucky enough to to meet her, uh, be around her a couple of times. She was she was a character, and I think I told you I I found a piece of a little document as I was uh, operations and production manager at Dallas Summer Musicals, which is a big in the old days it was a big roadhouse. It still is, but they would produce things there. And I found this little note from from Evelyn to um, Tom Hughes, who I think was the managing director at that time. And he said, Mr. Hughes, thank you so much for, for hiring me for this. I can't remember what the piece was. Um, she said, it means a great deal to me. And I hope that my young son, David, will someday be able to work on your stage. And I showed this note to David because David did a gala for me. And I asked him to read it because we brought in lots of celebrities and we brought in David as well. And I asked him to read this letter and I said, and then you can take it. He said, no, you hang on to it. Make sure the bow gets it because since you know me, I'll lose it. But here he was on that stage, the same stage that his, uh, that his mom was on. And I remember, she also said, and thank you so much for forwarding me the bus fare because they were actors, you know, and there he was on that stage. I love that. I was, I was just going through documents and I came across this and I was like, oh my gosh, David has to know this. And when I showed him the letter, he said, he said, but my mother had terrible handwriting. He said, this is my dad's handwriting. It might've been her words, 
my dad had nice handwriting. And so he wrote, he wrote a letter. He said, I know this is my dad's handwriting, but you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty legendary that, that Jack was jealous of, of David. He was jealous of his success and it really hurt his feelings that his father could not bring himself to be happy for his success. He just couldn't. And he carried that with him in his soul. He carried it. He was, he was always very careful to not speak illly of his father um, in public. He never really did. But I know it hurt his feelings. I don't think his dad ever, you know, appreciated that David's success came from his roots, came from his dad. And, um, and Jack was an imposing, great character actor. You, he always went, I think all the Cassidy's are, are very interesting in that um, they want one thing and they end up something else, but you want to just go, it's okay. You have, you have something, you have, your whole family has been so extraordinarily successful and have brought joy. And, and so, but Jack didn't want to be a character man. He wanted to be, he wanted to be, you know, a leading man because he had that beautiful nose. He had a terrific profile, Jack Cassidy, but he got cast oftentimes in like either smarmy villain kind of roles, and, mm. you know, because he was good at it. He was good at being smarmy, but David just, um, David's success just bothered him. Actors are, you know, we're, we're, we're tough cookies uh, because we can be very, very uh, supportive of our friends in the business, but you know, you just kind of go, yeah, but I could have done that role. <laughs> Why wasn't I hired? The whole Cassidy family, I like them. I like that they have stayed the course in their industry. Um, and, uh, and they were always, especially Shirley Jones, um, she just what an elegant, lovely lady. She really is, and she still remains that way. They, they're just a really impressive group of people. And they've always been very kind to me for no reason. You know, they didn't have to be. They, they knew that Dave and I were pals and that I produced and managed a portion of his career, but, yes. but they were always just nice. And I like that so much about them. Who were your musical heroes when you were growing up? Well, I, I hate to say it, because, but it was that, that time frame. I love Ricky Nelson's voice <laughs> when I was a kid. I was just like, I'm a traveling man. You know, it's just like, well, that's really cool. But my, my mom would buy over here. I don't think you guys had Reader's Digest, but Reader's Digest would sell record collections, you know, big old boxes and stuff and Broadway musicals and things like that. And uh, I would just turn on Oklahoma or the sound of music and just sing and sing and sing. And the neighbors would, would say, would you turn that down? So, so I was, I was, I was kind of eclectic. I, I liked all the, the rock and roll and uh, of that era because I was born in 1951. So, you know, 1551, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, it, it was, I liked, I liked so much of it. And then I, then I just listened to uh, Beethoven. I really, I, I loved all of that. So, but I, I really found that, um, ooh, I could, I could do this Broadway thing. I could do this. I could, I could do Oklahoma. So that's from those damn Reader's Digest 
emporiums of, of musicals. That's where it started. So it's really my mom's fault. <laughs> and if she was still alive, bless her heart, I'd remind her of that. I think ultimately she became proud of, of what I was able to accomplish in my career because I, I also was able to, and once again, and I'm, it's not just because we're, we're talking about David, but it was David who allowed me to move to the next part of my career. And that part of it was really, I think it was more rewarding because it was based upon choices that I had to make. You know, David brought me on because I was working for David. You know, I mean, we, we did a show at uh, the Desert Inn, the Rat Pack is Back. Great show. Don Rio and David wrote it. Just a great show. And, uh, and at the same time, we were across, uh, across uh, the strip over at the Rio, and we were doing at the Copa. Um, and then we went on tour. And then when David didn't want to go out anymore, then I was able, because of what he allowed me to learn about show business and contracts and writers and setting up health insurance. I mean, I, I, there were so many things that I had to learn to do, but it was because David allowed me to that that success happened. And, and I worked up until I retired and moved down here to Mexico um, doing just that, you know, running theaters and booking acts and, and, but that was David. It was all David. And I think it, it made him happy. He made it possible. And I think that that made him thrilled that he took me away from being that poor, pathetic old actor in the corner, auditioning for roles that you're just not going to get because you're yes. too old. Right, right. <laughs> and, we, and, and we know them. You know, we, we've all seen them. Mm -hmm. They're out there. So, yeah, I love my little elf. <laughs> did the stage offer him a whole new world of opportunity to present himself as a serious actor and i mm -hmm. wonder how important that was to his growth and to his self-esteem i think it was very important i mean when they when the when he and sean did blood brothers um that was an especially especially fine time for him um it's and i think that he was very proud of that work because it didn't, it wasn't him wearing tight pants and um, being sexy. Cause, and I said, I told, when I first, when we first met, I said, you know, I had no idea I would ever really meet you. I always wanted to be you. Girls always wanted him and boys always wanted to be as cool as David. There are a couple of areas of David's life that, that he wanted to improve upon. Um, especially he wanted to distance himself from being a teen idol. And so he loves being on stage. He wanted to do more serious things. But we did a gig where we had uh, David shared the bill with David Jones uh, from the Monkees. And he did a really nice, nice show, David Jones. Um, he had been doing it for years on the road. He knew exactly what he wanted. David liked to improvise his his dialogue and I always asked him to write something down just so you don't ramble out there you know it just kind of helps move us from from one number to the next it's more seamless um, right eventually because David watched Davy Jones's act and he said you know we need to go out together 
Um, so they did that for a while. And then he also did some of the, the, the shows with, uh, with Mickey Dons. And, uh, you know, it's, you can't fight what your history is. And, and he eventually decided that <laughs> that, that would work. Also, he was always concerned about how many numbers that he was performing in. And he didn't want more because that when we get of a certain age, it's, it's, not as, it's not as easy to just jack it up and do it. So he then kind of warmed up to the idea of sharing the bill, you know, because an audience, normally an audience is there for a couple of hours. You know, you have your first act, you have, you got to sell booze, you know, so you have to have your intermission and you also can sell your, your merch out on the road. But he warmed up to the idea of this because it was like, ooh, somebody else can, can share the bill. So I only have to do maybe 10 songs as opposed to 24. All acts will tell you that, especially in this day and age, you make more money on your merchandise than you actually can make from your salary. So we used to travel with merch and, and uh, that was my job too. <laughs> so, David loved it. He was like, how much do we make? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You don't need to know. <laughs> you'll just spend it. You'll, you'll buy another damn horse. I said, no. <laughs> but you know what he did do? Because when we when we went out on the road, he would look at the set list. Because I would, you know, we we together put together the set list. Um, and no one was, we, we there was no other talent on stage. So that meant that it was all David. And he would look at stuff. And sometimes he would go, ah, oh, Hollywood Nights is just a little bit too, let's not do that tonight. Because an act, a singer knows, and especially as, as we get older, we know what we can handle. And so what David would like to do, now as I would always have to say, David, because he would like to talk more. I said, well, Dougie, they're interested in what I have to say. I said, yeah, but they're not interested in 15 minutes of chatter that what they're really interested in is hearing your songs. And I would go, you need to get to the songs quicker. Yeah, but we need, we need to make sure that it's, it's it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, 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 long, a long, nice program. I said, then let's add some more numbers. Oh no, no, we can't do that. Because when we get older, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough to, to do 24 songs. I mean, that's a lot of singing, but that's what they're there to see. That's, they're there to see the elf and who enjoy, enjoy him. He never, ever gave me any indication that he thought that he didn't have a great voice. I thought that he kind of gave the world a different voice that that we got very comfortable listening to. Um, it wasn't a big belt at all. It was a covered voice as far as singers are concerned. Um, you know, I write this song. Everything was, everything was very aspirated when David would sing. And then he hit something really, and then it would be like, yeah, you got it. It's there. It's there. But his, his cool voice was really more. It's like, and he used to talk like that. Oh, Dougie, this was like this. Musically, it was a covered voice. David was always very sure of himself. <laughs> he was not, he was his dad's kid. Didn't you suggest to him that he puts his name forward for Mel Brooks, the producers? I did. 
I did. And um, I think we were on our way. We were on the train. I think we were going between Liverpool and, and Manchester when we were over there. Uh, and I had the CD. And I said, Dick, listen to this. Because I think, because I knew that Matthew, Matthew Broderick was getting ready to, to leave. Um, and I said, no, this would be really fun for you. And you could do it. You're the right size, you know, and you're, you're a good actor. It's like, why don't you do this? So he listened to it and he said, you know, I'm really interested. And then the next day he said, but I just don't think I want to make that commitment. And once again, it's back to eight shows a week. It's really hard. It's really hard. And people that don't understand how difficult an actor's life is, especially if you're a vocalist, because I'm not saying that just being an actor is just being an actor, but when you're an actor and a singer, you're still you're using your chords, the same chords, for more, because you have to you're you're speaking and then you're singing. So at the end of the day, I think that David really recognized, and I think there's value in it. It's like, no, I don't think I want to work that hard now, and that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of commitment. But he would have been great in it. He would have been funny. <laughs> he would have been. I just think that what happened is for that, that actor, he ended up getting pigeonholed as a television actor. And there's a big difference between a television actor and uh, a major motion picture actor. It's just a different thing. I always thought that he was, I really thought he was a much better actor than he was a singer. I thought he was really a good little actor. He, he learned well from the people that raised him. His mom, Evelyn, and she was the only person that he allowed to call him Dave. Um, and I, I came across some, some photographs that, that his mom had, had, had uh, sent to him, Dave. And I thought, oh my gosh, because if you ever even thought that you could call him Dave from South David. And I was like, okay, okay, it's okay, it's okay. His mom, his dad, being around Shirley, you have some really strong examples of good actors. And I thought that he, uh, I thought he was a really good actor. I thought that he, he understood, he understood the finite, small things that you needed to do as opposed to what happens on stage where everything is just blasted, you know, to, to hit the gods, yeah. you know, the people in the cheap seats. Uh, whereas television and film, they're just like, less is more. And he understood that. He should have spent more time being on, on, on camera because he was good. I mean, his so, performance on Police hmm. Story, A Chance to Live, that was good. Mm -hmm. that, that got him an Emmy nomination and you can see why. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, people get pigeonholed in our industry. That's what they do. And um, I think both Patrick and Sean are very good on camera. I mean, they're really good on camera. They've all learned from the best. And they know how to do it. But they all just, you know, we all move on to try to make sure that we can continue to pay our mortgage live our lives, put our kids through college. But I think the whole Cassidy clan, they have a real, have and had a great handle 
on on what being an actor is. And David David knew. Did he ever talk about any particular roles that he was attracted to and thought, I wish I'd been offered that or I could have done that? He was sure that he could do absolutely everything. But you know, he wasn't he never shared that kind of thought process. I think that as as time went on and he got older, I think that it was easier for him to do what he knew. Yeah. He knew how to stand on a stage, sing a song, and um, and and draw in his audience. So, you know, there's sometimes in life where you just go, I don't want to learn anything more. I'm old enough. I just, I know enough. I don't want to do anything more. And I think that David, he loved his horses. And I think that that being somebody else or trying to branch out in another direction in, in show business was, it wasn't interesting to him. I mean, I think that he had, he had a full life. He could have had a longer life, but he had a full life. So yeah, I, I, I get it. I personally, as a, as a past performer, I get it. You know, you just kind of go, eh, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have horses. It's like, David always told me, do not get horses. Do not get horses. Like, no, too late. (laughs) But they are a lot of work, but they are at a lot of cost, but they're lovely. They're just amazing creatures. Mine aren't thoroughbreds. David David was into racehorses. Mine are just my babies, Mm. and I ride them. David did not ride horses, (laughs) although he could have been great. You know, it's like, well, you're the Kindler Elf. You could you could <laughs> ride that horse. My gosh, you're perfect size. <laughs> <laughs> One song that David was handed, I write the songs. How much did he love that song? He was always upset that Barry had this huge hit in America. When he I think I think David recorded it first and was a huge hit in the UK because I used to always do David's sound checks because a lot of times David just didn't want to. And <laughs> just so I would do the sound check. I always like to do I write the songs because it's a great song. And I remember one day he came in and and they were they were working on levels and I had sung it probably like three times. And he came out and he said, okay, it's enough with that song. And don't forget I did it first. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> it's okay. But you know, David had a huge following in the UK, still does, even in his passing. Um, and he always was so appreciative, appreciative of that fan base. And Barry Manilow didn't have that same fan base that David had. I was like, I'll get over it. It's okay. You, you still have all those people that think the world of you in the UK and they're buying your cut of I Write the Songs and not, not his. So it's like, forget it. It's okay. You know, I think he always really hated the fact that, that however the rights got screwed up that way, that Barry was able to, um, to record it when he had already recorded it. That could have made a big difference and he knew that. He knew that that made a huge difference for Barry's success. And, um, and he could have used that hedge. And he knew that. And he wasn't wrong. Whoever was responsible for two major artists doing the same song and released 
in two different markets. I don't know how that happened, but it doesn't seem fair. It's as though David's version never existed. I know, I know. And yet, when we hit any venue, when we were at the in the UK, and he got to write, I write the songs, I mean, it was just like, <laughs> massive, absolutely massive. He was, that was his hit over there. But you know, again, I love the Elf, but he could be difficult. So who knows why this happened the way it happened? You know, be it far from me, because then that's just conjecture. Whatever happened, he still was able to work right up till when he passed, yes. you know, within a few weeks. So he did not suffer by not having that song released in the United States. Singers, there are a couple of different types of singers. Um, I like story singers myself, because, because if you're taking the lyrics of a song, you're taking someone else's work and you are communicating. And I always thought that David was a good story, story song singer. Hollywood Nights, it's totally, it's, it's, it's David. It's David living in the hills and, and the girls rattling on his, on his chain link fence at the end of the driveway. I mean, you know, it's, it's all that stuff. So I always appreciated David's uh, ability to be a story song singer. Because otherwise, then all of it is, is, don't you think I'm great? Don't you love my voice? And there, how many singers do we know that that's what it's all about? It's, it's, not about, it's not about telling a story or trying to draw you in to a thought process. And I always thought that David was really good. And I think, going back to what we were talking about, I think that that comes from being a good actor. Because story song singers internalize everything they're doing and they throw it back at us. That's what is not an egotistical singer. That is, I have a gift. I have the, the blessings of a great lyricist and a songwriter. And they gave me this song so I can change your life. I can make a difference. I can communicate something to you. And I always thought that David was very good. He might have not always hit every note the way he wanted to do it, but I always thought there was there was an intent to how he approached his music, and I and I always appreciated that. Having been a singer, I really hate singers that are all about, oh, it's so great. Did you think I'm great? Uh, did I tell you how great I am? <laughs> you know, it's like no, 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 no. You're not great. And most of those people who think they're absolutely great are not great. <laughs> what is the most important lesson, Doug, that you ever learned from David? That's easy. That we should always look for the next part of the rainbow of your life. David gave me that opportunity. He never said, he, he, he always believed that there were possibilities in life to move forward. Um, he gave me that opportunity. I would not have accomplished half of my life had David not been around, but he trusted and he had no right <laughs> to trust me knowing that I knew nothing about producing, but he trusted me. But that is also David. There was an ease for David to, to surround himself with people that he felt were his friends and that he 
he had just a great, he would just pass, pass you the baton and say, run. And so what I learned from David was I should not doubt my abilities. Um, no matter how, how limited my abilities may be at the time. So he really, he was, it's simple. Anything is possible. You can do it. I'm going to give you the opportunity. We have money. Go and run. And I will always be grateful for, for that at a time when performers get to a place where they really feel like you're done. Now what the hell am I going to do? David was going, you're done. Now you're going to be busier than you've ever been. And that's what he did. That's what he did. And that's why I, I don't say bad things about the elf because there are only good things that he did for me. Um, there may be people out there that don't agree with me. I don't care. I don't care. There's just, there was, for my life, there was no one quite like him for my life. And uh, so, you know, there you have it. <laughs> oh. It, it's wonderful to hear these such heartfelt stories about him, these memories and the, the friendship that mm -hmm. you had. He will always be missed and will mm. always wonder what else he could have achieved. Right, yeah. But he, he left behind a huge legacy. I keep waiting to hear because Bo, his son, is very talented. He's a great writer. Because social media is so cruel, then I'm not, none of us are aware of what he's up to. When he was still on Facebook, it was always so cool to see what he was up to because he's his dad's kid and he plays and he sings and he's, he's cool and he's totally cool. But I, I'm sorry that, that we're not aware of what the next part of that, that part of David's legacy is. And maybe one day, all of a sudden, Bo will come online and we'll all just go, yeah, good for you. But he's left, he's, uh, David's left great things in his stead. And a lot of people will love it. And, um, you know, it's just, bless your little heart. I'm sorry you're not still here, but I'm so glad that, that we spent that, that road together. That's wonderful, Doug. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing so many personal memories. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. I mean, I miss seeing your face. <laughs> <laughs> so you're working with a big band these days. I am. Yeah. I am. And it's fun. I figure, because I'm, I'm pretty good at being self-assessing, because I don't, I, think, I don't think there's anything worse than an old singer sounding like an old singer. And, you know, it's just like, not good. So I figure I might give myself six more months of singing, but I'll listen to it to make sure it's not scary. Because, I, because big band is so much easier to sing because it really just kind of, it's like boob life. I mean, it's just like really, it's, it's not singing Broadway stuff that, that lives in the gods and that you... It's just so hard. And so it's like, I kind of like this because I can just kind of be old sexy. So, <laughs> so it, it's okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Lovely to see you again. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, my friend, I better go and yes, get my hair cut. So. Okay, see you, Doug. Bye. <laughs>
Bye. Bye.